Hi everyone, my name is Tim Mikhailashvili. Welcome to my All Out Coach podcast, where I tell you to stretch yourselves and lift others. This is the podcast where many leaders share their legacy and lessons learned with all of you. Today, I'm very excited about my special guest, Eleanor Angelides, global executive at Amazon for over 13 years. And today, she's going to talk to us about negotiation because she is an expert negotiator the art and the heart of negotiation that's the title of this episode in my leadership series at amazon she was the first global director of diversity and her last role was director of kindle content risk management which required a lot of negotiation she's trained as an attorney and has helped represent large corporations such as Sears and solve complex cases in crisis management as well. She is a philanthropist. After Amazon, she went on to form her own company called Lead LLC, which is a consulting company. And also she's the founder and executive director of Open Hearts Big Dreams Fund an NGO that's focused on increasing educational opportunities for kids in Ethiopia, her daughter's birth country. She's married to her husband, who's also a coach and a leader, mentor, with three children, ranging in age from college to elementary school. She has a dog, a cat, and a parrot. As a volunteer, Eleanor has held board and fundraising positions with non-for-profits, WACAP, and Ethiopia Reads. She's an avid and published writer as well. Her blogs are called Ethiopian Ties and Balancing Career Family. She has two online magazines as well, Working Mother, Adoptive Families, In Culture Parent, and Women's Essence. She also published two children's books, The Loud Prince and Surprise on Lake Tana, with colorful, diverse characters through Kindle Direct Publishing. Eleanor, it's truly a pleasure to be able to share some of your insights today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. What were some of the turning points in your career? Tim, that was a wonderful introduction. And as many of my engineering friends will uh, tell you that they describe my career as non-linear. I have spent most of my career following my curiosity um, as well as trying to uh, maximize my impact and learning. And as Tim said, I started uh, my training as a lawyer. Uh, but prior to that, I really thought I was going to be a doctor. Uh, and that was probably the first turning point when I went to college as what I considered a smart kid. And I failed. Um, I, I failed. There was no other word for it. Um, and I think that was the first time that I realized you can be really good and smart and fail, and that failure is not fatal. Uh, so uh, I did run away to Europe because Europe is a really good place to figure out what to do after you hit your first big roadblock. Uh, but after that, as, as Tim mentioned, I did get a law degree. I worked for some very large companies. And I think a common theme throughout my career is looking for new challenges. I'm a builder, I like creating things, which you may have guessed from the writing and the book publishing. But I also have looked to use collaboration, which to me is working with others, and innovation trying new things to increase impact, 
both for myself and for those I worked with. So um, negotiation is a skill that I gained over time, obviously a very important skill for a lawyer. Um, but I also uh, led a team at Amazon that was tasked with improving the results of negotiations for the global business. So I've, I've done it individually, I've tried to do it at scale, and I feel like I've learned some valuable things along the way that I'm excited to share with you today. And you mentioned failure early on in your life. Who have been some of your mentors in life that you That's could share with us? I, I have rarely had formal mentors. I've had mm -hmm. lots of people that I consider mentors because they taught me things I needed to know or I needed to learn. And I have found actually mentors have taken both professional roles where they may be my manager or a peer, but they've also been people who reported to me and had a different skill set or perspective that they really helped me understand something that I needed to be more successful. So I feel like I've had mentors and guides and, and friends along the way that have helped me grow. And I think what is truly critical is to be humble, um, and to realize there's so much you don't know. And I've continued to learn the lesson of failure and stumbling throughout my career. Uh, and also that willingness to, to really listen and try and see it from another's perspective, which as we'll talk about a little bit later is I think really critical for effective negotiation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned learning from mentees, and uh, I can definitely tell you that the idea for the podcast episode, which uh, I had started for my personal passion and legacy that I'm focused on for All Out Coach, actually came about from somebody I mentored, uh, a mentee of mine, who had suggested this format of communication. So I absolutely agree. I think that the mentor and mentee is a, a contract, an agreement that both have to visualize in the same, same way in order to have benefit from it. Thank you for that perspective. Let's get into the negotiation, which is uh, some of your expertise and passion. How do you define a negotiation? Well, negotiation is one of those words that seems to scare people. People don't want to do it. I mean, there's a oh, small yeah. group of people who think negotiation is fun, but most everyone else views it as either a necessary evil or like getting a root canal at the dentist. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like it's really important to go back and look at what is actually the definition of negotiation. And if you go back to a dictionary, the definition I really like, and I think is very applicable to the kind of work we're going to try and do here today, is it's simply a discussion aimed at an agreement it's it's mm -hmm. not a complicated technical skill although there obviously is things you can do to grow it as a technical skill but as its essence it's literally two human beings having a discussion aimed at an agreement about something so if you think about it in those terms we're all negotiating every day with other humans around us whether it be our family or our friends or the people at work so you're already negotiating. Now I think the key is, are you doing it well? And are you doing it well in every situation? And that's what we wanna help you with today. Great, yeah. Uh, and I would probably say that uh, our career advancement is a series of negotiations as we reflect. For sure, like I think even what roles you get, what responsibilities you get that, like, yeah. I think part of negotiation really in the career sense is learning to advocate for yourself and you're mm -hmm. advocating for yourself could be with your manager, with your team, with other teams. And all of those things are human beings having discussions aimed at an agreement, but how well you do that and 
there's clearly preparation. I saw on your website, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. My yeah. husband is a basketball coach and that was one of his favorite quotes. Oh. Uh, but I think like everything else, the more you prepare, even in your career, rather than just let things happen to you, you will see the effects similar to if you're a, a part of a sporting team, you know, yeah. preparation is a key factor to success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think entering into a negotiation is already a good thing because it gives you an opportunity probably to reach an agreement, which many people forget because they kind of think that, oh, negotiation is something that you do at a car dealership or something that's short term rather than long term, right? Uh, For sure. No, I would describe myself as a value-based negotiator, which means... Mm -hmm. You're negotiating in the context of ongoing relationships. I would say the car dealer generally, I, I have an ongoing relationship with a car dealer that I've had very good success <laughs> negotiating with because they have a similar point of view, but I've had the opposite experience too. But if you are negotiating win-lose, you're assuming that's a one-time, that that's a one-time negotiation, not a relationship. And the reality is if you're in a work environment, in a family environment, in a multiple company environment, chances are there's a relationship that's going to extend beyond this one negotiation. So thinking about it in those terms is, is very important. Yeah. So what makes a good versus a bad negotiator, in your opinion? Well, I, mm-hmm. I have joked in other contexts, if you are the equivalent of a bad first date, which means you talk about yourself the whole time. You show Mm -hmm. no interest in the other person who is there and you wonder why they don't want to see you again. That has been my description of a bad negotiator. Uh, To me, a good negotiator is listening. They're Mm -hmm. looking to create value for both sides. They're looking to be fair. And I think really striving for win-win. People have joked that a good negotiation means both parties are a little bit unhappy. Um, But I would tell you my view of a good negotiation is both parties are happy or at the very least feel like the outcome is fair. So uh, looking back at your career, are there particular negotiations that you can speak to uh, without conflicts of interest to illustrate, let's say, some of the, some of those that stand out in your mind? Well, there have been some interesting ones, um, and I would say one that was most interesting and became the subject of a book was mm-hmm. when I was uh, still acting as a lawyer and we were in a class action um, Sears is a named plaintiff suing Visa and MasterCard in an antitrust case. And we actually Mm -hmm. were in settlement negotiations and it was in Brooklyn, New York, you know, with the context of a trial looming and really looking for where their, you know, common ground. And this was a, you know, generally not an ongoing relationship other than the, the, no one's going to stop taking credit cards. So it's in the context of how do you get a, a, an agreement in that context. And there was lots of people, lots of senior people involved. So it was really interesting to see how do you maneuver. And in that case, the judge played a really big role of trying to bring parties together. And I think in contexts where you're negotiating a business arrangement, it's often um, thinking through where is there additional information and who can help. And sometimes having a third party mediator arbitrate, you know, a really challenging negotiation or bring in a different perspective can be super valuable. And Mm -hmm. I think that was an example of that kind of arrangement working well. In preparing for this podcast, 
you and I talked a lot and I learned a lot from you regarding negotiation. One of the first things you had mentioned was that kids are great negotiators. Why are children so great at negotiating? It's really interesting because I think it goes back to if people are afraid of negotiation, they have learned to be afraid of it because generally as children, this is a skill we're actually born with. And mm -hmm. children are good negotiators for basically three reasons. And I, I heard this for the first time on an NPR show, and I would love to give credit to the person who did it, but I unfortunately can't recall who it was. Um, but essentially children do three things. And I have children and I can tell you that's true. I've been a child and I can tell you I did it to my parents. But first off, they're really, really clear on their objective. And I can tell you prepping people for negotiations, how often people aren't clear on what the objective is. What is it that you want to accomplish in this negotiation? What is a win? Um, and kids are very, very clear, whether it's not eating their broccoli or playing with their <laughs> friend or, you know, getting more time on the game, you know, the game uh, series, like they know what they want. Second, they're completely focused on achieving the objective. So again, in negotiations, people may say, I want X, but then they say, mm -hmm. I can't. someone says, no, I can't give you that. Okay. Yeah. What kid if in the face of no, you can't watch TV, doesn't come back with, well, my brother got to watch TV. You told me yesterday I got to watch TV. They're committed. They are fully committed to achieving their objective, which again, in good negotiations, you have to be fully committed. And the third one, which I think is probably the most critical, and adults have completely forgotten this one, is kids view no, even an unequivocal no, never, not going to happen, as an opening position. So you say, nope, you have to go to bed at 8 a.m., 8 p.m.? Well, what if I do this for you? What if I do that? Kids just keep negotiating even in the face of a no. And I think that is one skill that good negotiators realize is, is critical. No is simply an opening position for the other side. And negotiation can start from a no. And kids appreciate that probably better than most. Yes, I would have absolutely agree. Having two kids myself, uh, it's just, uh, it's amazing how early they start to negotiate. And successfully, so, right? And I mean, successfully, yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like parents are not equally committed to thwarting kids as kids are to achieving their objective, and that gives them the advantage. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I know myself, it's like sometimes you're just like, fine fine. I'm, I'm too tired, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have this discussion right now. So yeah, go have another 30 minutes on the TV. I, right. And then you hear the woohoo, because they know they won. The next uh, question I would, I'd like to ask is the power, because with negotiation, you always run into a power struggle. You'll have, uh, you're negotiating with someone of a different, uh, from a different role, potentially different vision as well. What are some of the sources of power that you can tap into uh, as you begin to negotiate? That's a great question because I think a lot of people assume that power comes from position and it is one mm -hmm. of the sources of power, but power comes from a number of other sources as well that can be developed by someone who doesn't have positional power. Mm -hmm. One is information. Do mm -hmm. you have valuable information that the other side doesn't, right? Do you know things? Are there things of value? The other piece to gain power is, do you know the other side's objectives, whether it be, you know, a boss or, an, you know, someone that you're negotiating with for an agreement, what are they trying to achieve? So I find a huge source of power for a more junior person is 
really spending time understanding the other side's objectives and then seeing what is it that you can contribute to helping them achieve that. Because I think that's a source of much power because you may have a different idea. I also encourage people to become creative problem solvers. Um, mm. And I can tell you, having been a lawyer, no one really wants the lawyer in the room, um, <laughs> if you're honest. Um, and I needed to be in the room. So I often had to negotiate to be able to participate. And my negotiation strategy was to be someone who always had great ideas and brought value that may have nothing to do with my, what my, my negotiation objective was, but it could be introducing people to other people. That's a source of much value providing a book recommendation for something that you think mm -hmm. might be valuable to the other. Like, I think people devalue the things that they have to offer and all of these things, because part of the power comes from building a relationship. If you build a relationship with someone, a genuine one where you're providing value, then when you, it's time to come for an ask, you have something that counterbalances that ask. And if you've, if you've done it right, you also can show how your ask furthers the other side's objectives, which then makes it less of an ask and more of a sort of mutual, um, mutual effort to achieve a common goal. Yeah, and I think that uh, from my experience as well, early on in my career, I've, I've certainly come across people with higher authority, with power, who have tactics, who are, are experienced in tactics uh, trying to put you on the defensive, right? in different situations. So as a trained uh, negotiator and a leader, I think what, what, I've, what I've noticed is that sometimes delaying or departing from that or interrupting that, that negotiation sometimes is, is a technique to kind of balance out the, the two sides or the two goals of a negotiation, particularly in those cases where there's a tone, you know, there's a problem where somebody doesn't really want to enter a negotiation and tells you right off the bat, for example, you're not ready for this responsibility. So it, rather than counter arguing right away, which is the natural instinct, right, which then kind of makes you makes that negotiation stuck and you can't really provide any more value. Sometimes it's best to delay that negotiation at that point, uh, stay silent, ask questions or or wait for another opportunity to re-enter uh, that negotiation. What would you what would you comment to my kind of my thought? No, you as identified, an expert. So you identified a few things that I think are really critical. Time is an element of negotiation. So mm -hmm. if it can't happen now, can it happen later? I mm -hmm. think that's a wonderful if it and it feels like the the conditions are not right. You know, delaying can be a great tactic. You also talked about questions. I think asking, if you've read the Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I think is a critical read for every leader, there's part of that seek to understand versus to be understood. So in this case, if someone said you're not ready, mm -hmm. a seek to understand question would be, well, tell me what you think it would take for me to be ready. What would I need to demonstrate? Because you will gather a lot of information if you ask I call them disarming, but they're really critical thinking questions, and they're literally to gain an understanding. And in the situation, if you argue, people yeah. will be, if you're defensive, the other side will be defensive. There's another great yeah. book called Your Brain at Work, and you want mm -hmm. to be in a situation negotiation 
where nobody's defensive. So instead of saying, I disagree with you, say, well, that's really interesting. I would like to understand more. I would, I value your opinion. Help me understand what would it take? And actually a really critical question that comes from Scott Works Negotiation, and they do training around the world if, if people want to go really deep, mm -hmm, is if mm -hmm. you get stuck in a negotiation, and this is, I call it the magic question, um, yeah. what would it take? And in this case, you could say, well, what would it take for you to consider me ready? Nobody's making a commitment. You're just trying to understand. But in any situation, asking a what would it take will give you a sense of where they're coming from and how far apart you really are, which is really valuable information to decide, do I pull back or do I keep moving forward with this discussion? So yeah, yeah. using these tools, again, each situation might need a slightly different set of tools, but sure. Ever stuck asking critical questions or buying yourself more time are two great techniques to get to the outcome that you want, or at least give yourself a, a higher likelihood of that happening. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think this is a very helpful lesson from you that many of uh, all our coach listeners and many of those in our both networks are going to find valuable, I think. Uh, so thank you. What would it take? Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to that case that I mentioned, having uh, having waited for the right opportunity and coming back to that discussion and the, that negotiation. So what was at that at the initial position termed as a waste of time ended up being a, a late breaker and a, a game changer for the entire organization and helped uh, create a new resource and re-energized uh, the, the organization, for example. To, to, the, to the other point on the what, what would it take, like that what if question, if you're a vendor, for example, and you have a great solution for your industry, but that is hesitant, it's something new, it's something groundbreaking, maybe a what if could be a three month pilot trial, right? That people could, could offer. So uh, yeah, I think it has so many applications and many aspects. That's yeah, and I would tell you that you just hit on another thing that is really an effective negotiation is to try and de-risk it for the other side. And a mm -hmm. pilot or a test, I used to offer this as a solution for a lot of things if you want people to try something new. They don't mm -hmm. want to go all in. They want to know it's going to be successful. So actually just using the word pilot or test Mm -hmm. Like allows people to say, I'm not making a big commitment. I'm making a small commitment. And if it doesn't work, I can get out. And it allows mm -hmm. you to demonstrate. So that often, especially in a commercial situation or even yeah. in a situation with another team within your own company, let's mm -hmm. run a small test. If the test mm -hmm. is successful and you can then get the commitment, if the test is successful, will you do X? And, it, and again, you can set the parameters for success, but you've essentially negotiated the test and what mm -hmm. comes next in a position where you generally don't have a lot of power, but you're, you're basically creating the power through this test and setting up what will happen if the test or the pilot is successful. You've trained, I enjoy coaching at work, outside of work as well. And a lot of my success, I think, comes from a sports, sports kind of approach where you visualize, you visualize success, you visualize that negotiation going well, that opening being very strong and very positive. What, what are your comments on, you know, the tone and how you open the negotiation that early? That's interesting because I, um, I, I married a ex-professional athlete um, who also has a master's degree in applied math. So sort of a got, you know, a jock and a geek at the same time. Yeah. And so yeah. I've watched him use 
all the sports analogies to assist people, whether it be in calculus or basketball or others. So it's really interesting for me, but I came from a family where the arts was valued a lot more than sports. And interestingly, the, the, the same sort of visualization or how are you successful Mm-hmm. are true and even like I modeled early days and you had to visualize yourself walking down the runway and be, because again there's a physical element to that so I think a lot of the techniques that people use for sports like when mm-hmm. I was a litigator too a lot of ex-sport athletes they apply much more generally and I've come to understand whether you're sporting or not like that ability to operate within a team is really, really valuable. How I start negotiations really depends on the situation. And I generally think it's valuable to open providing opportunities to the other side to present what it is that they're trying to get out of the negotiation. There's a great book, if you haven't read it, that I think is seminal for all negotiators, and it's called Getting to Yes. And it really talks about value-based negotiators and understanding, and I think actually even more critical than your opening in the negotiation, what have you done ahead of the negotiation to understand what the other party wants? Because I think essentially, again, a framing that Scott Works uses is how do you give the other side what they want? So again, it's a mental shift. You're trying to give the other side what they want, not get what you want. Right. On, On terms you can accept. So again, it still has to work for you, but like doing that mind shift that that you're there to make sure you can give the other side what they want in a way that works for you too. So it really does shift the focus to, I need to spend a lot of time understanding what the other side wants in order to understand how to get them to do what I want them to do, but it also serves their interests. So again, back to that relationship, it ends up being a win-win. But that really is a mental shift because I think the one area of sports that doesn't translate well into into value-based negotiation is that there's a winner and a loser. Yeah, Like there shouldn't be. And I think my husband and I are like, you, you, we argue on, you know, I work in the, in the field of gray with law and negotiation where I think sports and math have a right answer, wrong answer, winner and a loser. And that's where I think the sports analogy can break down a bit of, you know, if you have a loser in the negotiation, I feel like there's probably something that could have been done better. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly that person, if they have an opportunity to breach that agreement, will do that because they will not be happy. And I think you do want people to feel like, you know, agreements at the end of the day are fair, even if they don't like them, they're fair, because then you're not renegotiating all the time, which obviously is the risk of getting a very imbalanced agreement where you feel good about it, but the other side is constantly looking how to get out of it. Look at life as a sport, not as a war, because in war, there are no winners. That's interesting. Well, and I do think if you really think that participating in sports and the joy of being part of a team Mm-hmm. causes everyone to be a winner, then I think the analogy holds. And my husband had a state championship basketball team here in Washington. And there was one guy on the team who was who was very short. He didn't get to play very much. He was actually the state tennis champion for three years running as an individual. But he told you he told the whole team that his greatest joy was actually winning the basketball state championship as a bench player than winning the tennis championships as an individual. So I do think there is a winning that comes from doing things jointly that you don't, and war war to me is everybody loses. 
yeah, everybody. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> like war is like the worst way to resolve any sort of conflict. And I think yeah. sports gives you a more friendly way to resolve some of the conflicts. Of and I yeah. think there's there's lots to be learned from both. Yeah, yeah. And probably the the key is to to get the other party not to regard the negotiation as a war, but also to see it as sport as well with you. Talking about training, and I, you, I know you've done a lot of training on negotiation. What are some general competencies you think that negotiation training in the corporate world uh, should, should involve? Well, I think negotiation is a technical skill too. Um, and I think actually learning from negotiators, and you talked about one, there are different styles of negotiation. And we talked about win-win mm-hmm. versus win-lose. And depending on what situation you're in, those styles, you know, when I was negotiating in a litigation context, I'm not having an ongoing relationship. I need to get the most value for my client. So it's a different style of negotiation versus I have ongoing business relationships. So I think what your negotiation training needs to teach is you to have teach you situational awareness of what kind of skill and what kind of approach will work in different negotiations. I also think as a general rule, they have to teach you how, what kind of persona you are in a negotiation. What I loved about the Scott works training is they videotaped you um, and then showed it to Mm. you. So you literally had hands-on training and everyone like seeing yourself if you're a public speaker or you do anything like if someone videotapes you and shows you you will want to do it differently because you now get a full 360 view of yourself so i actually think negotiation training should have you do real like negotiations simulations because most training doesn't happen in a book it happens in real life and then i think competencies that are really important is creative thinking like, is mm-hmm. there a creative solution? Like, if they want X and you want Y, is there a W solution, right? Is there something fundamentally different that you could do? Because I think a lot of negotiations where I've been successful is mm-hmm. try and figure out the objectives of both sides and then come up yep. with something brand new. Um, and I think core competencies is being a really good listener, like listening for cues. Like you talked about power, understanding who is the decision maker. Do you have decision makers in the room? There's a lot of tactical things that can help make a successful negotiation. And you talked about one of them, timing is an element. But all sure. of those things, I think, okay. because it is an environment and you need to understand all the different elements that you can bring to that to understand whether or not you can be successful. And then I do think you have to train, and I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more, when is negotiation just not going to be successful? Because I do yeah. think yeah. people assume every negotiation can be successful and they can't. There are times where negotiation isn't going to meet the the objectives of both parties and that's the time to say okay maybe we wait maybe we you know need to come back at at a later date and and try this again like going back to my question earlier on the sources of power there's the power of the role which may or may not exist and may be overestimated by many which is one of the reasons why you have many people going on strike right because those in authority also depend on their productivity and efficiency on on their subordinates then there's that power the psychological power we talked a little bit about right that sports visualization but then i think what what i'm i've learned from you from this discussion is that really the third source of power is the most important that trade off where you consider the other person's point of view their universe and the batna how do you use that third source of power how do you use your batna the best alternative to a negotiated agreement 
And you mentioned some of those, the creative thinking, the situational skills, the listening, how to use them where the other person is not a trained negotiator, yet they're expecting some a win or a, some outcome. Well, I think there's two things, and I'm going to pull that apart a little. I think your best alternative to negotiation agreement should be part of your preparation. preparation. You mm -hmm. should know if I don't achieve these things, it's mm -hmm. not worth going forward. Um, and I'll give you a personal example. I got laid off when Sears and Kmart merged back in 2004. And I looked for other roles in the Chicago area where I was based. And I, I got an offer from a name brand company, good salary, but sort of the bonus and the you know, the, the, the equity I might get over time was really less than what I had had in mind and where I saw I could add value. And I negotiated. I negotiated mm -hmm. for non-monetary benefits. I negotiated to get those kind of benefits included. And I was told it's kind of a take it or leave it deal, um, which told me a lot about the company and, and did not meet what I had set ahead of time for the results of that negotiation. So I had to take a risk. I didn't have another job. I did not have another job offer. And I had a family depending on me, but I walked because I said I can do better. Like I knew I could do better. And then I ended yeah. up at Amazon. So I think yeah. knowing up front, when you say, you know, in a situation, this is not fair, this does not mm -hmm. make sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But defining that up front allows you to say, this is the best I can do. And it can be a great negotiation tactic to say, I can't do anymore. And the other side has to decide if what you asked for is out of range that they're going to walk to. So you have to risk that they will walk to, but they may not. So yeah. I think there's, there is like, but you have to know up front because it requires, I think that's probably one of the hardest things about a good negotiator is good negotiators will walk. You know, and you can see that you mentioned that, like unions, that is, unions yeah. know when to strike, you, you know, and good union and good union organizers know when to accept a deal and not. So I think that is part of the art of negotiation and the best time to do it is up front. And again, you may adjust it based on new information that you have. But if you're operating in the context where the other side is not a trained negotiator, that is fine. Then to me, I had that comment given to me, well, you're a professional negotiator. Yeah. Everyone has the same tools, right? They have the same tools. So I think what you want to do is then help the other side understand why it is that you're asking for things. So for yeah. example, I used to do strategic sourcing deals, very, very large deals mm -hmm. for Sears. And we had a vendor that came in and we needed to come up with a very different arrangement. So we talked about what the two sides objectives were and literally created something that had never been done before. And what was interesting to me is that vendors that the basically the owner of that vendor the ceo would come to me now i'm the other side's lawyer the other side's lawyer which is very unorthodox and said i need you to explain to me why you are asking for these things so i can explain it to my lawyer because i think what you're saying makes sense so if you can actually explain things in a way that gains that kind of trust that you're not trying to take advantage, you're trying to create a win-win situation. Yeah. I think you can bring along someone who's difficult, someone who's a novice, because you can explain in simple terms why this deal or that, you know, what you're asking for is fair for both sides. And I think that requires you to be able to, and I think it's a lawyer skill, how well can you, if you were on the other side, would you take that deal? And it's a question I make people ask, like, is the deal you're offering, if you were sitting on the other side, yeah. would you take it? And if the answer is no, why would they take it? Right? Like yeah. 
counting yeah. on them being dumb. You know, I think that's one question that people just do not ask themselves right? because they always concern. No, it's a hard interest, one. Right? Yeah. It's a hard one. And again, like I do that in the context of the corporate world too, of saying like someone is very upset with their manager or management. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Put yourself in their shoes. What other objectives are they trying to meet? Because yeah. often I can't treat one person one way on a team without having an impact on the team to your sports analogy. So when I tell someone, if you're asking for say more vacation, what does that do to the rest of the team? And I would mm -hmm. tell people as a manager, if you can articulate why what you ask is good for the entire team and good for the company, I will have yeah. a very hard time saying no, but it yeah. forces people to actually do that work. Right. Cause it's easy to ask yeah. like, can I, I need more money. Do you know the company's mm -hmm. budget? Do you know where your salary falls within, you know, the range of other people in your role? Like what impact will this have across other people? But I think it's very difficult to do, but incredibly powerful if you do it well. Yeah. Thank you for that example in particular about uh, Sears transition to Amazon. I think it's commendable and takes a lot of courage. And uh, I'm so glad that I, we have your time here in sharing that because I think that's a very telling and illustrative moment about a person's character in, in, in a negotiation and being able to be strong and knowing when to walk away. Well, I think when you stop yeah. negotiating, I think it's a really good one to always leave the door open, right? Mm -hmm. Like we haven't okay. reached okay. a deal now. Let's, let's connect again yeah. in six months. And I had sure. another okay. really hard negotiation when I came to Amazon with one of the like cell phone carriers and Amazon was small in the day. So it's hard to imagine, but it's back mm -hmm. in 2005. And we really needed this deal. We needed this deal for the business to be viable over a long time. So mm -hmm. I did not have the option to walk away. They did not want to do business with us. They had like, like minimal interest, right? Like mm -hmm. I literally got on the phone. That's I said, let's talk every week. So sometimes just like, let's talk every week. If something changes, we'll already have that call. And I think they got tired of talking to me. So it took us like 10 months, but we finally got a deal. So part of it's knowing, can I walk, but then leave the door open. And if I cannot walk, yeah. can I at least keep the conversation going? Because if anybody's lived life for more than five minutes, change <laughs> is constant. Yes. So you may not be able to get a deal today. Tomorrow may be a different story or a week from now or, you know, people change positions, the companies change priorities. So if you need that deal, just keeping the door open and keeping the door open with a regular scheduled call, make mm -hmm. sure that you can take advantage of as that change creates opportunity, you're right there to, to sort of, you know, make sure that you can move forward with it. But those would be sure. the two things that I would add. There's a great book that I'm reading now by Scott Belsky called uh, The Messy Middle, uh, talking about all those moments, all that hard work and the persistence that success really requires that nobody usually talks about. They most of the time talk about the end. And one of the chapters actually is titled, Leave Your Conversations with Energy. And that's what your comments there made me think of. And the way I, I've interpreted that and I've translated that into my uh, pharmaceutical industry, when I meet with experts, scientific, scientists and investigators, is that I always try to provide something genuine at the end of a meeting, even if there is no agreement that's personal, that's genuine, that's specific, that's not necessarily positive, but that opens the door. Like you said, I certainly am very passionate about being a scientist uh, and uh, not being categorical, even in a negotiation that may be a high stakes, right? Or may have a lot of emotions involved with it. 
but leaving leaving that uh, that room for for change for for agreement so culture a little bit about culture is what i want to ask you to talk about because i think it's very impressive that you were the first director of diversity uh, at, at amazon so all our coaches you know at all our coach i talk a lot about company culture about diversity inclusion and not only inclusion by the sense of belonging belonging to your team if you could just provide some highlights of of how you think negotiation and how you think ne- diversity really impacts culture in a in a business in an organization from your experience and your insights well i think that's a great question because i feel like negotiation is what people who are underrepresented have to do all the time. They have to negotiate within a culture that doesn't quite know how to support them in the same way it might um, support the, the, you know, the majority culture. And again, this can be on a number of different dimensions. If you're an engineering company and you're a non-technical person, you're underrepresented. If you're in a software Mm -hmm. development and you're a business intelligence engineer. So underrepresented I find is a really good word for understanding does a company do well by all its employees or just by the majority of its population? And again, that can be defined many different ways. I find what is really interesting is that everybody wants innovation, right? And mm-hmm. innovation is, is, you know, invention, creating new things, and they can be very simple. And there's a professor named Linda Hill who studies both innovation and leadership and has re- written a book that, I think is fantastic for leaders called collective genius. And really it gets at, she looks at case studies of very innovative cultures and what do they do consistently? Mm -hmm. And what do they do consistently is to your sense of belonging, they make sure everyone in the company has a voice at what happens at the company. And again, they give some very specific examples, but that's really hard to do. And I think that's one of the most critical things to give a people a sense of belonging. So mm-hmm. my last role at Amazon, I had everything from PhDs to new college grads on my team. And they, they were everywhere from Seattle to Costa Rica, to South Africa, to Japan and India. Yeah. And thinking through it, having a team, that's that diverse in terms of skill set, in terms of age, in terms of geography, and making sure everyone felt like they understood what the team was doing, they understood how the, the, their role contributed to the team's success, and that they had a voice. Like when you do that, it's magical. It really is. And part of it was going and actually listening to people. Because I can tell you, sitting down with my team in India and watching them go through a process that we had designed in Seattle and realizing it was terrible. It was terrible because we didn't fully appreciate how it would actually work in a specific context. As again, Mm -hmm. the world kept changing. It may have been designed at some point in the past. But Mm -hmm. then, then asking, well, what would you do to correct it? And having these bright minds have all these ideas and feeling freed. Now we're contributing. We're contributing in a different way. And it's really interesting. And you talked about mentoring. I still hear from people from that trip, even though I'm no longer at the company, about how much it impacted them to see a leader come and listen, right? Mm -hmm, In in an area where they were used to a more hierarchical structure, or that's what they expected. So I think that ability to listen, I think for me, diversity and inclusion and why I pursued that Mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. watching very diverse teams 
produce unbelievable results, right? So I think, you know, in a corporate setting, it's less about the social good, although I'm a firm believer in the social good of it, but more yeah. it's good business. And that to me, if, if, but it's hard. So I think that the paradox of diversity is there's all these amazing benefits from innovation to, you know, better problem solving, catching more mistakes, all of these things. If you can actually achieve diverse teams operating optimally. I think the piece that people forget is a diverse team requires very skillful leadership because the whole, the whole reason you get innovation is the friction of different people's ideas. And if you don't manage that well as a leader, you just get friction of people and friction of people does not get you anything but like people unhappy and people quitting. So I think what the, the missing piece is you have to create leaders who know how to lead and manage very diverse teams and manage the, the dialogue and the discourse that will come from people wanting to approach problems very differently. And that part was really exciting to me because if you can do the work well, the outcome is amazing, both from the business results and how people, to your point, how people engage with the culture. Everybody wants to feel like they're making a contribution. They're having an impact no matter what their role is and no matter how big the company is. Yeah. And if you're a good leader, it's very possible to give people that experience. I'd like to ask you just some questions uh, so that those uh, in my network professionally and through all our, those who follow All Out Coach can get to know uh, you and how they can contact you as well. Uh, but what are some activities in which you lose yourself or escape? that you enjoy that you would like the others to know about uh, from a personal uh, perspective as well? Well, I love to walk and it sounds so yeah. simple, but I live in Washington. I literally can go to the end of my block and be in the woods and yeah. sometimes see bears and, you know, uh, small cougars and coyotes, which is, you know, um, an interesting. So walk and observe as well at the same time. Well, I find like actually taking time to walk every day. I love it. So I feel like every moment of the day you should do things if you have a choice that you enjoy, but Mm -hmm. I also get really great ideas and there's actually a lot of science to like releasing yourself from the structure of the day, like Mm -hmm. ideas flow. And I often, I just take my iPhone with me and we'll stop in the middle of the woods when an idea pops in so I don't lose it. But I I love walking. Um, and then I love gardening. I feel like gardening is just an act of hope. Um, you put things in the ground and you want, the, and sometimes they live and sometimes they die. Sometimes they turn out exactly the way you want them to. Yeah. And sometimes they become insidious and overgrown, but I feel like there's so many life lessons and coming from a Dutch culture, um, gardening is just, I think, part of the national culture. So there's, yes. a, I really enjoy yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And you're a philanthropist as well. It is really interesting yes. to me. I adopted a child from Ethiopia back in 2008. Um, mm-hmm. And actually looking at the opportunities that exist for children in developed countries versus other parts of the world was really eye-opening for me. And in my daughter's country of 109 million, half the population can't read. So all the things mm-hmm. we're talking about, yep. inaccessible to millions of people. So part of the humility for me was, it's one thing to work on the challenges we're talking about. It's another thing if you don't even get the opportunity to participate. So um, the focus in Ethiopia is how do we get more literacy? How do we create more opportunity? And how do we connect the world? Your opportunities should not be different based on the accident of your birth, but 
unfortunately, that is the reality now. So that is my, my act as a global citizen is to see how do I, in a real tangible way, create more opportunities and equalize opportunities. And I think the interesting part for anyone who does this kind of work, it's equally hard, it requires all the same skills, but the reward you get in terms of your impact yeah. is outsized. And I think I'm constantly negotiating and learning and listening in that role too. So the interesting mm -hmm. part is they, they tend to meld together um, because the, the roles always have overlapping learnings and obligations and people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, fulfillment. Fulfillment and legacy are the two inspirations for All Out Coach at this point of my career. I'm certainly proud of uh, what the pharmaceutical industry is doing for millions and been billions of patients worldwide. But I'm always looking to, for ways in which our industry, my function, my medical division in, in the industry can transform itself 2020 and beyond. So I'd like to ask you, what makes All Out Coach relevant to you personally? Well, the interesting thing is that the two things that, that you use to, to sort of be your tagline are probably things that I have like used my entire life to stretch yourself. I constantly tell people like, you need to take risks. You need to take mm -hmm. personal risks. And again, risk means something bad could happen. Like I think the problem is people are like, well, something bad could happen. Yes, that's what a risk means, right? You could, you know, I left Amazon and I'm trying something new. I may not be successful. That is the risk. But really stretching yourself and getting out of your comfort zone, I think it's one of the most critical things to grow as a human being. But it's not an easy thing to do. And I think it's so rare. So that ability to encourage people to really stretch themselves and then as a good coach, you would say, and then stretch yourself a little more, right? Like yeah. um, my husband got a lot of feedback from his players that he saw potential in them much greater than they saw in themselves. So he would mm -hmm. stretch them beyond what they thought they could stretch themselves. And I think most people tend to underestimate their own potential. So yeah. again, like, make your stretch just a little broader than maybe you thought it could be and then uplift others. I feel like we're, you know, life is a team sport. You know, we're not, yeah. we're not in this alone and it's incredibly rewarding both professionally and personally if you uplift others. Cause to me, you can't uplift someone without getting uplifted yourself. So I think those two pieces that are the core of what you do are what the world needs right now. And I think as people think through careers, there's a, there's a wonderful Venn diagram that says, you know, what are you good at? You know, what do you love doing? What does commercial and what does the world need? And it seems like you found with All Out Coach, like the center spot of all of those things. And that's really inspiring to me. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor. That means a lot to me hearing from you based on your experience and your vision and the fact that not only are you an expert in negotiation, but you're also a philanthropist, somebody who is passionate, bright, and who also is an entrepreneur. That certainly has a very strong impact across different industries, I think. So th thank you very much. And I believe that a lot of the lessons that you have shared and some of the insights are going to be very valuable to a lot of our friends in our network. This last question, I'd like you to share one message that you want to, to convey to those who are going to listen to this episode here, this discussion? I believe one of the most powerful things that we need to all hang on to is resilient optimism. Um, I think 
it is at the heart of everything that we have discussed here today, the belief that something is possible. Um, people call it growth mindset, people call it a lot of other things, but I think in the face of obstacles that you continue to believe that something is possible. Now it may look different, it may take a different time, it may take a different form, but that belief that you can achieve different things and that you can have the impact you wanna have in the world, again, with the understanding that I thought I was gonna be a doctor and here I am many years later doing something entirely different, but having the kind of impact that I want to have in the world. So that ability to believe that it's possible, I think is absolutely critical to achieving any of the goals you have in your life. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor, again, the CEO of LEAD LLC. I'm so glad that you were able to provide us with your time. It's been an honor, a privilege, truly. Have a great rest of your day. And please, please make sure you tune in to this episode and comment. Let us know what questions you have for Eleanor as well that I'll be happy to forward to you, to negotiation, to mentorship, to job fulfillment, culture as well. Anything you'd like to add or any final comments? Well, Tim, thanks so much for giving me this opportunity to share. I, I think at this stage of my life, that ability to have impact at scale, because I got to the point where you know, being able to impact people one-on-one -on -one was becoming untenable. There's too many people over the course of a career. Yeah. So that ability to use this medium and to, to actually reach out to a very different industry that I'm no part of um, is really, really exciting to me. And I think that that collaboration allows you to increase your impact. So being a part of this is really special to me. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what feedback people have and what questions people have. Because I, I will tell you, every piece of education to me starts you on a journey and it's what comes next. And I'm always really curious about what was the impact, whether it's positive or not, so that I can continue to learn. So getting this opportunity and the opportunity to hear back is really, really special. Thank you. I certainly have learned and have been inspired by your experiences. So thank you. Thank you, Eleanor. Have a great, great day. Thanks all. Thank you.